I'm Eric Holdeman, and this is Disaster Zone, a podcast about emergencies and disasters of all types. Disaster Zone will bring you interviews with people dealing with all aspects of disasters, from what causes them to how people and organizations are dealing with their impact. Here's today's program. This podcast is being sponsored by Dynamis, a leading provider of information management software and security solutions. You can find them at dynamis.com. Welcome to today's Disaster Zone podcast. With me today is Dr. Mark Keim. We will be discussing the need for a National Disaster Safety Act, similar to what has been accomplished by having a National Motor Vehicle Safety Act that saves thousands of lives. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks a lot, Eric. I appreciate uh, you having me on today. Yeah, and uh, it's been a long time since we saw one another in person. I guess you could say this is in person since, where do you live? on the East Coast? I live in Atlanta, yeah. It's been All a long right. time since I've seen anybody in person. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, listen, Mark, uh, a lot of people might not know who Mark, Dr. Mark Time is. Briefly share with our audience what your background is concerning uh, disasters. Happy to. Well, I started out actually as a disaster victim when my family was uh, hit by a tornado in Marion, Illinois in 1982. So, um, and then I later went on, I dropped out of school for quite a few years, worked and went, went on to become an emergency physician. And then I subspecialized in disaster medicine. Um, and then after that, I spent a career at CDC working as a senior public health uh, scientist studying disasters. And I was the CDC incident commander for 911, the anthrax emergencies, and Hurricane Katrina. Okay. You actually ran the CDC's Emergency Operations Center, if I remember. Yes, sir. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah okay. for those three emergencies. Absolutely. And then during um, the Indian Ocean tsunami, I actually went out and led the field team um, in Indonesia on the USS okay. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. All right. Back mm-hmm. in 2004, maybe it was 2005 at that point. When yeah, we, that's when right. We got there. Yeah. Good, good memory. <laughs> um, well, Boxing Day Tsunami. <laughs> yes. A big yeah, it's hard to forget, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, 26th December. That's right. So, that's right. Well, listen, uh, you are one of the contributors, writers, to an editorial calling for the establishment of a national strategy, strategy to better understand the impact of disasters on deaths in our nation. How did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, that was actually an editorial that we published in April of 2019 in the American Journal of Public Health. And and what we called for there was a national strategy because despite billions of dollars in disaster allocations, the U.S. disaster mortality rate has remained essentially unchanged for the past 50 years. Um, So what does that mean? It means that despite all of these efforts that we've been doing in the past 50 years, and that includes, I know many of your readers know, uh, or your followers, the Stafford Act, the Nunn-Luger Domenici WMD Act, that goes way back, Papa 1, Papa 2, all the Homeland Security Presidential Directives, the National Disaster Medical System, ASPR, the, uh, the inception of FEMA, and so on, all of these things we've done over the past 50 years, and disaster mortality is the same. Uh, you have the same risk of dying today as you did actually in 1970. As a matter of fact, even earlier than that. Okay. And, you know, that's the trend now. I'm just thinking about with climate change, we're seeing more frequent disasters, more severe disasters, whether it's too much water in one place and not mm-hmm. enough in another drought and, and uh, 
flooding as we've most recently seen for Hurricane Sally's, you know, had mm -hmm. feet of water, not inches of water. So yeah. we could see the mortality without changes actually start to go up, I would think. Yeah, and actually the data that I just sh uh, shared with you is to, uh, up to 2018. So it doesn't include COVID and it does include the hurricane season from this year. And like you said as well, uh, those, those increasing um, exposures that we're getting in the hurricane and storm seasons as well. So yeah, that's right, you're, you're exactly right. And that's my concern. If it becomes more expensive and becomes more frequent, how will we really keep up when we're struggling to do so right now? Okay, and you know, we're comparing this to the auto act that was done before transportation. Mm -hmm. How does understanding the when, how, and why deaths occur help in preventing future deaths? Yeah, well, you know, we, going, going back to that uh, National Transportation Safety Act, that was really, you know, we turned back to that one because it was so successful. It was called one of the top 10 public health accomplishments of the last century. And, but, and basically what we need is it helps for us to have an understanding of when people die. And that's what we did with those highways. We looked at when and where and why and how. And so that we can intervene. And in, in the case of environmental disasters, like what I'm used to working in, hurricanes, or maybe even the explosion actually in Beirut is a good example. Most deaths are due to injuries and occur during the first hour, actually. Um, so this prevents us from actually even the best medical systems in the world from reaching the victim on time. Um, and whenever we're unable to present these, uh, prevent these deaths by medical treatment, the best thing that we can do is try to prevent them from ever occurring to begin with. And so this requires us really to start to take a step back. And that's what we did in the case of transportation disasters. We, we want to know why the airplane went down, not merely what the end uh, and uh, how the ambulances did afterwards. Uh, we should, this should be the case for all disasters, not just the ones that have been involved with national transportation, but also uh, hurricanes and other types of disasters as well. It'd be nice to have a, a separate and independent look at that. So we want to know why people died, and address it with an ounce of prevention instead of this pound of cure that we've been trying to, to afford and trying to do mostly ineffectively, actually. You know, one of my pet peeves is that uh, there is a ton of disaster social research being done across the United States, but I see little of it being applied to how we prepare for, mitigate, respond to, and recover from disasters. <clears throat> and so, you know, why is that? So we, we've, we have this information but we don't seem to be applying it somehow. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you 100% actually, um, Eric. And I can only speak from my own personal experience, you know, and I'm looking at it from that public health lens and what I've uh, seen from inside the government. So let me address the two parts of your question. One is, why is there a ton of social research? Well, you know, we all know it's important. This, is, this involves social humans and, and our behavior. But also, you know, we have to recognize that our sociologist colleagues <clears throat> have actually become very well organized and efficient in their collective approaches. So this dates back to Enrico Quarantelli's Disaster Research Center in Delaware and has expanded also to include very inc inclusive efforts that um, Lori Peake's Natural uh, Hazard Center in Boulder, Colorado has done. So they have really gotten organized and brought the, so to speak, you know, brought the tent together. But second also as well, I find in my own personal experiences of being a disaster researcher in the field, not just in the US, but all over the world, is that practitioners are just slow to apply research. Folks want to cut to the chase. We're under pressure when we're in the field or as incident managers in the emergency operations center. And that's no time that anyone wants to look at research. 
So even during my CDC days, you know, people would always frown upon us coming in. And I think, you know, rightfully so in some aspects, because we do have some sort of a inquisitive effort, you know, that inquisitive mind and academics that may not necessarily be as practical. But also, too, we sort of turn off the tap at the same time to our abilities at that time, even for managers, for emergency managers to study the principles of management for them to study planning and quality control and how we can apply those in emergency situations under austere environments. What's that sound like? Sounds like the military to me, (laughs) right? Um, And then the other aspect as well as these social determinants of health that I think that we really um, need to start thinking about in applying in research. And also finally, just, you know, we're not looking at that. We're looking at getting the job done today and getting back home again. So why are we not, uh, you know, questioning when death rates are variable, when our work is always focused on today? We are not really focused on the trends that occur over time. So that's my thing. And I agree with you as well. I think that there is a need to integrate all different kinds of research, including social uh, sociology research as well in the social sciences. And I think they're kind of the great catalyst, uh, sort of the glue and the, and the grease for bringing these different sectors together. Certainly they've worked with engineering and engineers and emergency managers, but just we're not, I don't think that we in the health, public health, or in certainly in um, medicine are reaching out to sociologists. Okay. Well, you know, we're, we're preaching to the choir here. You're the preacher, I'm the <laughs> choir, vice versa. Yeah. You know, I was right, just on exactly. a four-hour Zoom call with Department of Homeland Security mm-hmm. consultants that talking about maritime uh, port resilience and that, and they have all these great materials to be shared about how to make your maritime industry more resilient, the dependencies, the interdependencies. And the song I kept saying is, this is all great, but if nobody's using it, it's worthless. What you got to do is work on the marketing of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great to have a library of great information, but if it's not being used, then who cares? You know, so, That's right. And, uh, you know, you part know, of it is professionalization as well, Eric. I agree. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I say emergency management's only in its tweens, and we're acting like 13, 14 year olds, I guess. <laughs> yes. Anyway, as a profession. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, I hear you. I've read some of your materials, and you talk about the focus on disaster response. And that is kind of the sexy piece, that's what people think, you know, emergency management does, um, but it's not the emphasis for what you're proposing, and why is that? Yeah, um, you know, I think that disaster medical response is simply ineffective, <laughs> and I and okay. consider the fact that I myself am a disaster medicine subspecialist trained at Emory University, so after a career of scientific study and practice, I'm telling you that we are not making a difference. I looked at the statistics and came about this from a very personal level, uh, trying my best, always trying to do the, looking for those articles that may show we are effective, and they're just not out there. Um, and while it feels great to, you know, tie on our capes and fly into the rescue in these scenes, and I think there is a role for a response, of course, and I don't want to overemphasize, underemphasize that. In reality, most people that will die already die before we get there. And when you, when you look at the statistics, um, if we really want to save lives, we have to be there before the bang. 
the answer to the Beirut explosion is not more ambulances. <laughs> the answer to the that is government regulation of port facilities, and we're not uh, necessarily uh, blind to that. Or we're not necessarily the best at that in the world either. So I think that those are the kinds of issues we have to think about, uh, uh, okay. not waiting for the bang. Mm -hmm. The prevention aspect. Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, what are the major components of the legislation that you're part of proposing? Yeah, it's easy to remember ABC by the mnemonic. And we're proposing a National Disaster Safety Act. And so A is the administration, the National Disaster Safety Administration. Um, and B, an independent National Disaster Safety Board, like the National Transportation Safety Board right now that works uh, with airplanes. Only this would go for all disasters. And then C, a national center for disaster statistics that also came in the original legislation with the National Highway Transportation Safety Act, they included one center where all the information could go, where academia could get access, the government could get access, and it was transparent to the public as well. Yeah, there's, of, there's no, yeah. There's no go government center now. In the universities, I guess, right? No, no, actually, you know, the, the best job is done by CDC, but they have no mandate to actually um, look at trends over time. So what they do is they do an excellent job if they're invited into the state to do a particular, um, um, uh, a particular mission assignment through FEMA. And if the states don't request that mission assignment, which is a, comes at a cost, um, or comes at some obligation to work with CDC directly, um, they don't do it. And many times those things are either delayed or not performed at all. Um, so there is really no place where you can actually say, what did hurricane deaths look like in 1988 compared to now in Florida compared to Alabama? You can't find that information unless you start really digging into state um, records and, and many of those are difficult to find. So yeah, we need one place where all that can go and be analyzed in a way that actually, you know, uh, cuts to the chase. So I, you said you wrote your article in, in 2019, it's 2020 now. Yeah. You know, what will it take to actually get federal legislation proposed <clears throat> to establish a national strategy and have it be passed by both the House and the Senate? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's current draft legislation in the Senate right now that would establish a National Disaster Safety Board um, as the first step for a more comprehensive national act that also includes um, the ABNC. Um, uh, but it'll take recognition that we don't have money to waste on operations that don't have measurable outcomes. I think that's really where we have to go the same way that industry and the same way that profitable businesses occur is that you have to show that you really do have a measurable impact. Um, and Americans expect to know where their money is going and whether or not it's making a difference. And so far, it's really not when we look at the health profession or the, the entire um, public health uh, sector. So I tend to see it more as a, a sort of a macroeconomic viewpoint with, with the primary driver being this increasing risk from climate that will cause us to move more from what we used to be as reactive and crisis oriented to a more proactive and preventive focus, but also a cheaper and more cost-effective focus, which I think there's your driver. You look at people that after Hurricane Katrina that want to live on the coastline. Uh, insurance company said, fine, you're an American. You have absolutely right. Just pay your $25,000 insurance premium every year and you can move right back there. So the invisible hand of the market, while I don't think it needs to uh, be completely unbridled, um, it does tend to settle some of these issues in the long term. Yeah, and I just listened to another podcast this morning talking about uh, the 
future ability in California for homeowners to get home fire insurance in mm -hmm. the wildland interface uh, zone. And uh, there's, there's a one-year mor moratorium that's about to expire put in place by California where the insurance companies could not drop these homeowners, but that moratorium is going to expire here shortly and call it natural selection or what, but if you can't get fire insurance, the value of the house you have, the ability to have a mortgage is yeah. greatly diminished. Yeah, then it gets real. Then it starts involving the finance and so on. Well, you know, for me, the when I was back at working at CDC, the early indicators of climate, people getting serious about climate were Munich Re and Swiss Re, when they started talking about the unsustainability of the insurance uh, paradigm in climate. And the, as these become more and more... Uh, uh, less and less profitable, then that whole risk transfer of uh, insurance uh, perhaps can go by the wayside. And when those big folks talk about that, they yeah. reinsure all the insurance companies of the United right. States. So they uh, they are the final say so. I believe. Yeah, at least the market is reinsurance uh, are. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. well, one of the things mm -hmm. I've learned, I, I haven't worked on federal legislation. I can tell you that, but in the difficulty of getting legislation written, submitted passed at the state level, that you need to identify who might be not only for it, mm -hmm. but who might potentially be in opposition to the passage of the proposed legislation. Who, if anyone, might be against what is being proposed, what we're yeah. talking about here? Yeah, yeah, that's very astute. Actually, I've you know experienced that myself as well, and I have not been in this uh, in this arena for as long as you, as you've been uh, working in it. But the you know it's rather intuitive, counterintuitive actually. My own personal experience, uh, the most frequent opposition to this kind of legislation has come from those people that are involved in emergency response, as compared to preparedness or recovery. It's not the politicians that are pushing back. They when they hear this, they want things to work out. They want things to work, um, and I'm not saying that emergency response wouldn't it's just that that old saying about if you, all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail yeah. um, and I can't really characterize it as opposition either I think over the past 10 years that I've been working on this there have been several that while supporting the bill in name actually seek to change the intent a little bit and we move from that of primary prevention that I've been talking about today to another action after action study of the response mechanisms right. in other words if we can just study the ambulances on the ground instead of studying the plane crash in the first place, we may be able to save more lives. Um, and yeah. for, for, yeah. uh, for this reason, I, fa I found it necessary to remind people over time of this true intent is that really, I'm not sure that we would have had the conceptual drift if the financial incentives for prevention and uh, response were, were switched. There's a lot of capital driving response. You can burn a lot of money when response gates open up in FEMA and other state uh, agencies and so on. Uh, no one wants to spend money until it does, uh, you know, is obvious in our face. That's a natural human instinct. So it's, uh, it's difficult to be able to, to have those economic drivers um, that drive prevention. But like I said, in the long term, I think that may be where our legislation ends up. Okay. And so what do you think the prognosis is for this legislation? I mean, we're mm -hmm. in, in government, it's called the silly season. We're in the mm -hmm. middle of an election cycle. Um, yeah. Nothing's going to happen until 2021. I know that. Right. So right. What, mm -hmm. what is the strategy for trying to move this legislation forward? 
Yeah. Well, you know, I've been trying to meet with as many people on the Hill that I can, uh, can I can talk to. And I know more recently now that one of the senators have picked it up. I think they're planning on bringing it up in December, which I had the same kind of question as well, because I, okay. I feel the same thing with you as well. Even in a lame duck session, there's very little chance of us passing major disaster legislation. Um, I also think, it, it, so I think, you know, everyone recognizes that it's, it's uh, got to be uh, after the election. And then, of course, uh, the other thing we recognize as well is it's probably more likely to occur with this different administration than the current administration as we, as we are now. Um, so for that, that's one of the main things that I think we have to rec recognize now. And, and I think going forward, but then again, I've been working on this for 10 years. You know, we've been trying to really mainstream the idea among the scientists. <clears throat> we've put together the editorials. If it doesn't make it this year, I'm going to continue to push on this issue, not because I think I feel dedicated to it. I just think it's inevitable. I think we're driven towards prevention, and we've done that in medicine. You know, we tried to cure smallpox until we got an immunization for it, and we still haven't cured smallpox. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing with fires. You know, you look at the the sprinklers over your head right now or because we can't cure burns and uh, that when burns still kill people in remarkable numbers and we're not that effective in burn care up to a point so i think that gets down to our same issue is that many of these things drive us towards those things regardless of our uh, rationality or lack of rationality in our behavior i think you are on the right path though when i say it's you know success comes where preparation opportunity meet so the, the preparation is introducing legislation, you know, lining up uh, bill sponsors and all that. Unfortunately, we're, we are terribly reactionary as a people and as a nation. Mm -hmm. So uh, the opportunity, un uh, unfortunately, becomes this mega disaster. Yes. 9-11, terrorist right. attacks, uh, mm -hmm. Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina, those types of mega events. Um, all your preparation, hopefully, will come to see fruition at some point in the future when people are very motivated to take action. They have something in front of them that they can do, and uh, I think your work will pay off at that point. Well, thanks, Eric. And I agree with you. You know, I, I actually even wrote a book chapter years back about looking at um, post uh, 911 legislation. And, you know, we have that 18 month window after a disaster happens right. where things happen. And if you don't get in the 18 month window, it just diminishes that yeah. and and it certainly also has to, it's disaster specific coronavirus will remind us about pandemics as we forget about hurricanes and earthquakes of course so yeah. uh, so yeah. it is it's a short memory but once again i think having that idea uh, mainstreamed and people realizing that maybe there is a better alternative than uh, banging our head against the the door again and again and again so well, we'll I'll, I'll, I'll close my piece with telling you a story from Dennis Maletti, and I know oh, you yeah. know that name. He was a preeminent yeah. disaster researcher and on warnings and stuff. And I had an opportunity to share a bus ride with him a little ways. And I asked, well, how, how long does this post-disaster thing work? And I said, well, if the government keeps in front of people and, and that, you know, the disaster preparedness message, maybe you can carry that forward for three years. I said, well, mm -hmm. how about for elected officials? He said six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, not there encouraging. You go.
<laughs> I know. Well, you know, hey, you've been around Washington. You see how quickly the, the, the you know, the newspaper and the imp- yeah. uh, information changes and the focus is almost daily, you know, or hourly now. So, uh, but, you know, once again, being there and educating people and reaching those folks before they become policymakers, while they're still in, in business and then still in emergency right. management, you know, uh, those are the times when I think uh, to really try to mainstream this. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your folks as well. Thanks for being on the show. This brings us to the close of the podcast, and it's been great to have Dr. Mike Mark Time. I actually know a Mike Time, by the way. Oh, do you? For <laughs> joining me <laughs> today <laughs> and sharing information on trying to get a national program established. And if you want to learn more about Mark's work, you can check out his website at disasterdoc.org. A reminder to everybody uh, to be safe. Think about how a future disaster might impact you and your family and what you can do about it now before that happens. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's Disaster Zone podcast. Tune in again soon for more information on all aspects of disasters and what people and organizations are doing about them. You can also check out the Disaster Zone blog at www.disaster-zone.com.